Hello there. Hi. I am Orla Guinness. And I'm Ricardo Deacon. And you are listening to The Recommendation Game, a bi-weekly film podcast where we take turns to recommend a film the other has not seen, we watch them, and then we Skype to discuss it. You are listening to Dublin Digital Radio. This week's film is I Am Not Your Negro from 2016. There are days when you wonder what your role is in this country and what your future is in it. I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive. In 1979, James Baldwin wrote a letter to his literary agent describing his next project, Remember This House. This book was to be a revolutionary personal account of the lives and assassinations of three of his close friends, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. At the time of Baldwin's death in 1987, he left behind only 30 completed pages of this manuscript. Filmmaker Raoul Peck envisions the book James Baldwin never finished. That's about the best synopsis we've uh, n- seen in ages. That's almost as eloquent as James Baldwin himself, which is quite appropriate, I think. <laughs> this week's film was picked by Ricardo. Yes. Ricardo, why did you pick this film? Well, like I like this movie both as a movie and as a tribute for James Baldwin. Uh, I think that it is quite a simple simple movie in the way that it's put together but uh, I think it works because James Baldwin's prose was so good and efficient in both uh, efficient uh, is a great word because <laughs> it, it both uses uh, not that many words to be able to uh, portray very deep feelings and complicated thoughts I think that in a lot of ways his movie, his books are hard to adapt. I think that uh, Barry Jenkins did a pretty good job adapting If Bill Street Could Talk. You ready for this? I've never been more ready for anything in my whole life. You know I love you, no matter what happens. You and me all the time. Honey, there's something I gotta tell you. Like many like great writers, that the problem with adapting them is that the prose in itself makes so much of the book work that if you withdraw it, like Jenkins does a good job of trying to replace the the lack of Baldwin's prose by adding a voiceover and also by using cinematic tools like music and close-ups and stuff to try to mimic the effect of the prose. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's when you have a great writer like James Baldwin, sometimes the words is all you need. I think that the way that the synopsis is presented there that I hadn't read it, that it's interesting that the most successful film about his work is the one about the work that he never did because it's a movie that is able to fill in the blanks in a way rather than uh, adapt something that was already quite perfect in itself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that in a way it's such revelatory as well to hear Samuel Jackson so softly spoken like yeah. you know you, you you it's not the way that you associate with the way that he speaks and I think that even though he's not doing an impression of James Baldwin I think he captures his cadence quite well so yeah. it makes the, strangely it's it is quite revelatory the story of the Negro in America is the story of America it is not a pretty story. And I think it works because of that, because it's not getting an actor to try to do a James Baldwin impression, mm-hmm. but it gets the the emotion and the uh, how measured his speech was. Like even when he gets really emotional, it's very measured. Like uh, Baldwin, even in the videos that are presented in the movie when he's like rising up in emotion during the lectures he's never uh loses the temper of his voice the tenor of his voice Mm. it's just that he adds more emotion to that 
So I think that uh, the melancholy that uh, Samuel Jackson brings also uh, makes a great divide between the the public persona of James Baldwin and the personal persona, because so much of this movie is based on the personal writings not intended for general consumption. So I think that it's important to do like that, um, that division, that the way that he spoke in public is a very public speaking uh, way of dialogue. While uh, whenever uh, uh, he's writing these very uh, deep letters to his uh, publisher. To Jay Acton, Spartan Literary Agency. June 30th, 1979. My dear Jay, I'll confess to you that I am writing the enclosed proposal in a somewhat divided frame of mind. Almost an exploration of the way that he feels that he could not present that in a debate, let's say, because then it makes your point lesser in a way. So you're able to see a weakness that is not that common in his, his prose and his books. There's a saying that uh, I can't remember when uh, I heard it, but it's like the one of the biggest crimes of the American uh, racial system, uh, racial oppressive system, mm. is that it forced people like James Baldwin to have to focus their entire career writing just about the one issue. That is like, what else, what other books and themes he would have been able to explore to such an amazing degree without having to be forced into writing this uh, kind of mm. material. And like he says in the in the letters, that it's something that he takes responsibility, even though he doesn't want to do it. But like he feels he has to behave as a witness, as, as a moral imperative rather than an intellectual one. Uh and also, I think it's a really touching tribute to Medgar Evers and, and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X in a way mm -hmm. that very few films are able to do that. That, like Baldwin being a witness to their uh, actions and uh, behavior, it's very moving, I feel. And the way that it personifies. Luther King and Malcolm X and Malgar Evers in a way that is I haven't seen other movies do it because even something like yeah. Malcolm X and Selma and stuff it's still dealing with the these monoliths themes. of culture kind themes of thing. yeah context well, well this is like you know it's the personable thing and I think it's very clever by Raoul Peck as a filmmaker to allow James Baldwin to just say these things. He doesn't fill in. For example, like Medgar Evers got killed because the police that was meant to protect him left him. Like, so there's a, a, a very plausible implication that either the police was involved or they were certainly aware that there was a plot against mm. his life. But Rolpec doesn't go there. He just leaves it hanging and if you have questions leaves the audience the space for them to seek the truth by themselves because that's not for baldwin it's not the problem the like baldwin sees the insidiousness of this system as so ingrained in american culture that it's no longer surprised that his friends are being murdered and I think it's so moving how he describes the moments uh, that he hears about the news of his three friends. It, when his sister sits down with him again after Malcolm X has been assassinated. She was very strange when she came back. She didn't say anything. And I began to be afraid to ask her anything. Then... Nibbling at something she obviously wasn't tasting, she said. Well, I've got to tell you because the press is on its way over here. They have just killed Malcolm. And he doesn't want to ask the question because he knows that the, the he doesn't want to know the answer almost. And I think that it's like poignant also that he shows Evers it like as the wearier of the two and I think similarly to James Baldwin the problem that Evers had was that it was a reactive kind of 
social justice that he was looking for. It wasn't like um, like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were being proactive in changes that they were trying to apply, while Baldwin and uh, Medgar Evers were actually dealing with specific issues. Let's say, like Evers in particular was dealing with specific cases of injustice, and I think that it is very poignant that Evers uh, was younger than Malcolm X and Martin Luther King when he died. But as Baldwin describes, he's way, he seems way older and beaten and like uh, he has more, like his face is more weathered by it. And I think Mm -hmm. that perhaps it's because like it only takes a second to create an injustice, but then it takes years and sometimes decades to fight for that injustice. And by the time that you have any sense of a victory, 150 to 300 of the injustice have happened. And it's like the man trying to beat out the sea with a bucket, like the waves just keep going. And I think that this movie more than anything is a testament about how unfortunately America has not changed at all since the sixties. Like uh, the thing that hit me the most whenever I saw it for the first time is the Nazi symbology already being employed in the 60s. When you're considering like that these people, their parents already fought, like it's not like now that there's like perhaps a certain detachment to the past that you can divide it. And I think as well that it's like the part that people forget is that the little girl that is like in all the pictures on the past that she was the first girl going into the segregated school in, uh, I think it was North South Carolina. I might be mm-hmm. wrong, but in the deep South anyways, that uh, she there's like loads of pictures of her. She was like six years old at the time. And there's pictures of her being surrounded by sheriff deputies because they were afraid that somebody was going to kill her. And she was only like six years old that all the parents of uh, the kids that were sharing the classroom with her pulled out their white children out of the class. And only one teacher in the school uh, accepted keeping teaching her. So she went through school with no classmates, only one teacher to do all the classes and stuff because of this system. And she's only 65 years old now. It's like it's not that long ago. And I think it's the the other genius of the movie that it brings you back into the present to show you the without hammering it home and being too obvious about it, but very movingly reflecting and refracting the images and the words of James Baldwin to show how prescient his thoughts were and how the discussion that he always said that white people in America had to had for America to move on never happened and in a way it's not surprising that so many movies that are dealing about race and racial issues and injustice have been coming out in the last number of years i don't think that is a coincidence that somebody i read somewhere mentioned it i think it's more of uh, a cultural show that it's like the people are tired of waiting for that change as a movie, I found it incredibly moving. It's one of the few films that, like, from beginning to end, like, I watched it, like, a few weeks ago for the first time. Like, I've been a big James Baldwin fan for years, and I have no idea why I didn't get around to watching this movie whenever it came out. But, uh, like, it's one of those films that uh, it grabbed me from the very opening when it, when I as soon as I realized that it's gonna be based mostly in in Baldwin's words, rather than trying to contextualize Baldwin, like mm-hmm. there's no other talking heads talking about how important Baldwin was or culturally or whatever, uh, being a, a portrait of him, I thought that it was a, a it grabbed me straight away and like Sam Jackson's voice just fucking stays in my mind when I watch it like his voice put together with Baldwin's words is like a combination I never thought that I needed but I Mm -hmm. I needed Uh, I think that it's like there's not a lot of excuse for emotionally using the actual photographs of lynchings and I think that this movie actually makes the argument for using it and uses it in both uh, 
a way that is not exploitative, but it's also emotional and thought provoking. And I think mm -hmm. to move for a movie to get to that stage, it has to be successful. And yeah, like I think it's a, a movie that in a way is more prescient. That like I don't know how my reaction would be of this movie if I watched it on its release. But I mm. think it wouldn't be as different because it's post-Ferguson. It's like the same way that the ending of Black Cat's Man hits you hard because like Charlotte happened. So you're watching this already in the context of what's going on. It's just this was one more step. And the moment that it hit, like obviously hits you hard is whenever they're describing, he starts describing police kneeling on people's necks in the 60s mm, in Birmingham yeah and it's like that, there's one image that like where there's a it's a cop on a woman's neck and the image is like ah! it's like you could crossfade literally yeah. into the present like well like I've been rambling now for like 23 minutes so I could uh, <laughs> hand over the floor to you Orla uh, thank you Senator like considering uh. <laughs> that uh, the my last two picks uh, you rather disliked, I really well, hope that this one uh, I did you not you very dislike the bad sleep. Well, I you can retract that statement. Uh, <laughs> thank you for yielding the floor. Um, yeah, the thought was interesting. Uh, what you said there about um, if uh, we'd watched this in 2016 when it came out um and what how i would have felt about it then and um, based like thinking of because ferguson is what 2014 and just looking at even how conversations about like race and policing had like peaked like that ferguson was such a moment for like in modern times for people and the way that like 1992 and the early 90s was and like Rodney King was for people then like for white people then that was kind of our version of that of like suddenly this this like sea coming up and people like fully being aware of it where the conversation then was like you know oh my god this is oh my god this is such a thing this is such a problem like oh my god it's still happening you know it, it was such a discovery for people uh, which is obviously enough of a comment on like you know america and you know the world in general um so i think it, it then whenever uh george floyd happened we'd already had those conversations so recently that it was suddenly the thing that we kind of knew was still there, but we'd forgotten about because there were, you know, all the fucking Trump presidents and all the noise that distracts people from stuff like this that's been going on the whole time. How you could go from him being murdered to such global protest so quickly is because of when it happened, it happening like in 2020 after we'd already, we've already had our watershed in that sense. So people have like, you know, black people didn't have to sit down and go, you know, to like clue us white people, this has been happening. This has only been getting worse. Like, you know, Ava DuVernay had did not, you know, she that she's already made the film about the prison industrial complex. You know, it's 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 just it's. I find it so interesting watching this now and drawing the line between not just the past and 2014, but between 2014 and now. I find that very interesting. Um, yeah, I just want to say like um, uh. I think this is a really strong case for a film that is imperfect in its execution, but is so essential that it doesn't really matter, I think. So, like, we'll get to the issues. I don't like saying issues because a lot of them are kind of cosmetic. They're, I don't think they're integral. I don't think it's they're very big problems, but I did find them a little bit distracting sometimes. But we'll get to that because I did say this is a really powerful film. And, like, what you said about um, the combination of James Baldwin, his voice, and also um, Samuel Jackson's voice is—it is—it's so perfect, and because like you know it's Samuel Jackson, and then but you keep forgetting it's him, but not in a not in a bad way or a distracting way. Like it moves between him and Baldwin's voice so effectively that you know you never you never even imagined it would have worked so well, and I find that was like such a good choice, but um. We watched, um, do you see LA 92? Um, 
documentary about the LA riots um, post Rodney King, but it's entirely archive. It's like 90 minutes of, of archive of with like titles and stuff, but there's no commentary. There's no, it's all done through mostly news footage, helicopter footage. And it's a brutal watch. It is like, I've seen reviews of it criticizing it for being pure, like, leaning too much in the sensationalism of it of like you know people in helicopters saying why are they burning things why are they burning things and like the 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 reaction of people then and the lack of understanding from people and then everything obviously that leads us up to like the oj trial um the like confusion of people of why are people burning their city um i i'd recommend it um i don't feel like it it's a very different film to this because this film is so personal to James Baldwin, even though it's not his film, but it, it kind of is. It's a, you know, like if it, it's such a weird uh, success, I think, of, of being able to like, like take something that isn't made, but also they kind of make it through a film. <laughs> you know what I mean? So like a, a book that was never even written, like it's, it's what, 30 pages of a sketch of a book and somehow because he was writing this thesis his whole life like not just of his thesis but of like you know of all the things that happened to him in his life of when he when he was born and where he was born and you know all all those things it was all it was being written the whole time which i find really interesting that this film is able to do it so successfully but um but this film is powerful in a different way because of like it's so guided through by his voice of his actual voice and his voice through um so say Martin Luther King his voice through Samuel L. Jackson um like the, the, even like he says something about how he's not he was he wasn't an organizer he wasn't a rallyer he wasn't you know a, going into communities and like he he was more like a commentator but still a very active participant because he had such a strong relationship with these people and he was placed as you know whether or not he wanted to be felt he had to be uh, as a commentator as a as a as a face as one of the faces of a movement over, as he like, said time. that is like uh, there's a very thin line between a witness and a player but the line mm. is there nonetheless mm. he's always questioning um his own role and his own how all these things all the all the things that impact his life and what you said about him describing where he was when each of them died is so powerful it was a wonderful bright sunny day top of the car was down we were laughing talking and the radio was playing then the music stopped and a voice announced that Medgar Evers had been shot to death in the carport of his home and his wife and children had seen the big man fall. Because it it bring it brings you down from all the 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 stuff. It brings you down from like you know like that Mad Men episode when Martin Luther King gets shot, and you know you're seeing it through the eyes of like you know the main characters in that show, and it, it feels so like you know it's just confusion. It's just confusion. They don't understand what's what's happening, and it's this crazy you know the city is burning. And when you compare that to him describing his sister coming back to the table and him kind of knowing, it's like that's so personal and so like it's bringing you down to the like granular level of the thing of like, you know, these were he, he was a real person and these were real people in his life. And it's like that. That's so powerful. And it's through his own words as well. Like it's so, oh, man, like I think it is a very brave choice to to completely rely on that and not have um sit down interviews and and like you know not that that's a it's that's not a bad thing but you're saying about like simplistic and in a way relying on sit down interviews and doing things in a more conventional um like documentary narrative sense that's kind of simplistic in a way <laughs> like this is like maybe simplistic in that it's using so few elements but you, you're leaning on so few things you have to be very like you have to have a strength of your conviction in making a film like this um yeah the i find um the the use of his because film and cinema is so was so important to him um the use of the archive of that and the, the clips and him talking about um like him seeing black people in cinema from like 
the start of cinema the whole way up as like a child and the confusion with him and him seeing um, a woman in a shop and how to him as a child you know she was the same there was no difference and the realization of a young child of that but there is a difference and like i find that it's really the, powerful the, because what he says there as well that like he mentions how kids before they're three or four they don't realize that they're black mm. because everything you see you know like you you don't you don't see yourself as another until the world tells you that you're another yeah and i think it's, it's quite... like quite impressive how like that's why in a way it's the the importance of representation in cinema and the arts that it's such a like a perspective that you wouldn't have by just hypothetically putting yourself in the shoes of somebody in that system the way mm. that it it's almost like a magic trick that makes you think that it's like you deserve to be separate i don't think like as he says as well is that is the idea of the 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 white person's idea of uh, of black people that they were always content in what they had, and it's like mm. it's no, it's because we've been fucking worrying about struggling to survive first, and then you worry about the what you want for your future. But you have to be alive to be able to have a future to begin with. So there's no point of like hypothetically be like. Oh, if you read fucking Karl Marx or whatever, like, yeah, mm-hmm. you have to be like, oh, yeah, like, I have mm-hmm. to stop this fucking cop from stepping on my neck. So, yeah, like, I think it is very powerful. It made me think of in OJ, um, I can't remember who says it, but um, he's talking about, like, the use of OJ in advertising and how this was such a big deal of, like, using a black person as, you know, to market something that for such a big company, like, this is such a big deal. Um, he talks about how seeing, like, black people on screen in, like, toothpaste commercials and, like, seeing them brushing their teeth. He's like, you know, we knew we brushed our teeth, but we'd just never seen someone on screen doing it. Something so basic as that, as, like and seeing that and going wow <laughs> like that's a big deal and to be um, honest it's also like one of those things that it, it reminded me watching it um it's a pity that america doesn't have anymore like a show like dick Cavett show it was like mm-hmm. major network show that actually discussed things like openly like dick Cavett himself wasn't the most progressive person ever but he was always open to question the status quo or bring people from both sides and shine a light on things you know like Mm. uh, even i remember he brought in a guy that was like a sheriff or something or the governor of a southern state i can't remember what but the guy was so openly racist that the rest of america realized that wait up a minute like governor let me let me just ask you this right straight out what do you understand racism to mean or how would you define that or segregation uh, would you say you're a segregationist uh, yes and i believe uh, in my term or uh, my definition of segregation should say mm-hmm. uh, and that is uh, a segregationist a person that loves his race enough or other races enough has enough of racial pride and integrity to want to preserve them mm-hmm. you know you're going celebrating fucking rod steiger and uh and Sydney Point here shaking hands at the end of a movie and you go like, yes, racism ended because they shook hands. It's the problem with a lot of white Americans. I think Baldwin really eloquently says it, that the problem with segregation is that you don't, you're not able to fucking see what's happening next door. So mm-hmm. like for a lot of like white people, the people, the black people that they see on screen are the cool people. Let's say like, you know, like, oh, or it's gangster rap or whatever. Like it's like your your view of like ten percent of the population of America is so myopic that is impossible to coalesce your existence with their existence. Like I'm a foreign person in Ireland and it's arguable if I'm a person of color or not. I'm like white enough for most people to think that I'm white but dark enough that I've been called uh, racial slurs, but mostly about the Middle East because 
most Irish people that would use those slurs wouldn't even consider there's somebody from Latin America <laughs> would come over, you know, like the... Uh, yeah, it's like light-skinned privilege. And I think that I, I suppose that I, like, until very recently, and of course with what's happened in the world, uh, even more so, that I realized that even, like, I stood by a lot of racism just because... Like, is the fear of it being directed to you when it's not directed to you, but it's still racism? Like, in the way that mm. a lot, especially older Irish people, but not exclusively older Irish people, uh, would say to me, like, oh, you you know about Irish history or whatever. You're one of the good ones, kind of thing. <laughs> and then you're kind of, like, at the time, I was like, because I felt mean? Irish... <laughs> Because I felt Irish, I thought that it's like, oh, I did a good job. Yay. But then at the same time, it's like, would I be lesser if I hadn't integrated as much as I did? No, like, I'd be like, you know, it just happened how, to like, be... How many Irish I... people do you know that know the fucking national anthem? Like, you can fuck away off with that. Like, <laughs> yeah, but... you're a real Irish person. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's fuck like off. this kind of like way that is... You know, oh, you speak with an. Is it? Is the same whenever like I meet anybody and they go like they think that they're being polite by just saying like, oh, surprise how good your English is. Your English is amazing. It's like, Jesus Christ! Thanks? I've been living here for fucking seventeen years. You'd expect my like for me to be at least able to communicate with people, but also like, who gives a shit if, if I was able to like just get across the point that I'm trying to get across why it doesn't matter that I use your man all the time it's like <laughs> you know like people compliment me for saying oh you say your man that makes you an Irish person it's like no that makes me somebody that has lived in West Dublin for ages like what makes me Irish is that I have an Irish passport I have the same rights as you do and also I am Irish because I identify as Irish but I don't mm -hmm. need your gratification to make me Irish like you're not the fucking gatekeeper uh, who yeah. is or not is your an Irish. purity like ugh. yeah like uh, and, uh, bullshit from an Irish person as well like yeah considering really the, <laughs> the history of immigration of the Irish people my god we have polluted the Irish like <laughs> uh, on like a separate note like uh, with the things that you were recommending I'd recommend also to either watch the BBC adaptation of it, which was like a documentary series, but mm -hmm. uh, the book and the audiobook in particular are really good. It's called Black and British, the hidden history oh. of uh, black people in the British Empire. And mm. it's really, really interesting about how like Britain mm. kind of erased black history. So it became something post-war kind of thing, you know, like... Uh, and it's again one of those reads that you're just shouting at the tv or at the book or your phone while you're listening to it because it's like how it could be but it it very easily describes how racism was formed because racism didn't exist until the 1600s really in western culture which is quite impressive that we just invented at a, at a we're a, we were efficient we were efficient with art <laughs> and it's the, the ingenuity <laughs> and it's the uh... part also of like the the people that really forgot about history i think it's there's an argument to say that is like not that i agree with it but uh it exists an argument that is like sometimes the system are so ingrained that it's hard to fight them so you fight other things so like mm. you know slavery or whatever is like it's hard to to fight it so we won't but then you have people like fucking napoleon the fucking slavery got abolished during the french revolution and then he brought it back in like 20 years later it's like but nobody mentions that when you speak about napoleon you know nobody mentions about haiti being the first country to to end slavery because slavery should be something that is uh, the end of slavery freedom to the black man and black women is to be given by the white people not to be gained by them 
Like, mm-hmm. you know, even Wilberforce in the UK is the person that entered slavery for the British Empire, forgetting that they, his laws only passed because they realized that they were going to lose all their fucking sugar cane if Jamaica went in another revolt. So it was like the fear of losing and also considering how incredibly inefficient and unprofitable slavery is. That's the way that why in a way the South after the Civil War realized and stopped arguing against it because if you just keep everybody poor and pretty much a slave but they're free, quote unquote, then it's easier to make profits out of them because you spend the same money. Because it's the the argument that they paying twenty white men to chase one uh, escaped slave was less was more expensive than just paying the slave guy no money and then charging him for food and boarding. So it's like this madness of systems that are created just to make money in a way. Capitalism in itself it's the fucking poison for everything. I don't know how it will come about. I know that no matter how it comes about, it will be bloody. It will be hard. I still believe that we can do with this country something that has not been done before. We are misled here because we think of numbers. You don't need numbers. You need passion. And this is proven by the history of the world. The tragedy is that most of the people who say they care about it do not care. What they care about is their safety and their profits. They mention kind of airy enough on not through Baldwin himself but through like an FBI letter or memo about how he's been a suspected homosexual Um, and then they never really mention it again there's like a brief moment where he talks about like uh, like black sexuality and uh, but they never really address it and then afterwards I was like reading about it and how fundamental sexuality was to his writing and his identity and I find it kind of strange that they sort of bring it up and then they don't really talk about it well like it's just the 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 part of it I think more than anything is like a comment a on the FBI how they operated because in a way they hoped that he'd be gay because then they could blackmail him and uh, yeah and quiet him down but also is the idea of uh, like uh, I think it's the the mentioning uh, that he keeps bringing back to John Wayne the idea of American masculinity that like somebody mm-hmm. that it like you know the FBI especially like fucking FBI of J Edgar Hoover which who was possibly homosexual himself but in a way mm-hmm. that because of his upbringing was completely angry about it in a way so he targeted people that way Mm. but is the fact of america and that they could understand a malcolm x but they couldn't understand a james baldwin somebody that is like soft-spoken intellectual just like has very uh, not gay gestures but they're almost feminine in a way that it's not like for american kind of thing the way that he speaks is almost latin and uh, as yeah. somebody that used it to talk a lot, you know, like yeah. using your hands a lot. It reminded me of like Uruguayans mm. that you kind of like open your hands and close them to make points almost to punctuate the conversation. And I think it's so alien to American audiences using that. And I think it's uh, he used it the same way as politicians and other public speakers use their hands. That is a way of distracting yourself and keeping pace. Mm. So like you're able to create a rhythm for yourself when you're speaking that is makes sense to the audience and it's like it's just it's just being mentioned because it's the same as like rock hudson or something like that that is the fear of destroying a person's career he it was very forefront of his work though which is why it's kind of strange that they never talk about it or mention it again i think as well because like um like there's there's a lot of quotes from like you know members of the Black Panthers and various other people of, of he was kind of shunned in a way by other members of the movement because he was gay. Uh, Kennedy referred to him as uh, Martin Luther Queen. Like Bobby or JFK? I think Bobby, yeah, which I find kind of 
okay. But um, it it was it's just it was interesting because I've been watching uh, Mrs. America, yeah, um, which is about the um, uh, Equal Rights Amendment, um, which is a flawed show, let's say, in how it tries to kind of point out that at the time how like you know black women were so like cut out of the movement but also um how there were certain um feminists who didn't want to embrace like lgbt people either and that like that that that's there's such a rift there and how this was seen as like you know we'll we'll get these rights first and then you know of, of like people being cut out of of movements and i think they're there's something there more to be explored in in his like life and stuff. Yeah, but I think that like a lot of the the, the his writings perhaps I not did not focus on that. As in like yeah. the, his novels and essays do uh, talk a lot about sexuality, but in his personal writings, which this film are, is based on, I doubt that he. Uh, Perhaps I'm wrong, but I don't think that there'll be like a huge amount of, at least in the public domain, of mm. things dealing with that. Because especially at the time, like you didn't want to have a record of that leading anyways. You know, like uh, no mm. doubt he'd be scared of it. But even like the way that he describes about going with white women to dances and stuff. I think that in a way of hiding his sexuality to certain people, like uh, mm. would be important for a career that he had at the time considering also that a lot of his novels like have a lot of sexuality in them but mostly heterosexual it, the mm. same as like Rupert Everett said that it's like Hollywood doesn't have a problem uh, with uh, with straight people playing gay characters but they have a problem mm. with gay characters playing straight people when it comes to like romantic interests like he doesn't mm. have to be a gay character if he's just the best friend but if he's playing like the the love interest in the movie, you have to be straight. That is mm. the the uh, even nowadays it's very rare to see a gay actor think, playing yeah. like an openly gay actor playing. Uh, uh, well, maybe some well like Andrew Scott. Um, like it's getting or better. I'm yes, t- TV I think is is oddly more progressive in that sense. I think it, even someone like Ben Wishaw. Oh yeah, uh, he's, you have that. Yeah. Like you, you even have Ellen Page now. The uh, mm. and uh, not now, but you know what I mean. Like the in the sense of that there is some sort of representation now. The point being that it's they're noteworthy exceptions, because mm. they're noteworthy exceptions. That proves that there is a rule. Let's say, but thankfully it's getting much better. But in a way, it's uh, like. But also, I think that like Baldwin, uh, uh, a lot of the problems that he had at the time, like within the movement, let's say, is that um, as he mentions himself, it's like, am I the white person's version of a civil rights advocate? Hmm. You know, somebody that is like just talking about doing it the right way. uh, Like that is actually just conversation. Yeah. And and like just to finish off on the political side of things until we move to final thoughts and stuff like that, I think that it's important also to remember how Bobby changed. And I think having yeah, those conversations bro. there, the, you see the conversation that he had with uh, uh, James Baldwin and that, the, that other writer, the one that wrote A Raisin in the Sun, I can't remember her name now. Uh, that when he had the conversation, he's pure fucking white privilege kind of person to have be the person that whenever Martin Luther King died and he came out and like spoke to the crowd in a way that Chicago was the only major city in America that didn't protest after King's death because Bobby was there to share in their grief in a way. And I think that his positions on so many things advanced over his years. Like the, uh, mm. you see him even when he was in the White House as like secretary, yeah. uh, uh, as attorney general. He was very naive and not really open minded to things, but even very quick to anger. Like Bobby, for all his things, he was one of the few people that actively changed and made himself change 
on purpose. And it's hilarious because the only thing that he was never able to change was his hatred for Lyndon Johnson. But <laughs> but in everything else, he was able to evolve and make his mind be evolved when <laughs> presented by when the, when he was presented by facts and evidence that conflicted with his personal experience. He was able to take them on board and evolve. Like I don't think that he was the per- perfect politician. Or the perfect person, or the perfect like even uh, voice for the civil rights movement, especially as a white politician in the sixties. But as a white politician in the sixties, he was the best that you could get, kind of, kind of thing. And I think that is also important in a way to have that distinction. That is like the people that are able to have those conversations and they're in power and as important as the people that are pushing those dynamics forward because at the end of the day, black people will always be a minority in the United States. They'll always be 10% or more, but like generally speaking, there'll be a minority. So they themselves... I don't know, Ricardo. What about all that white genocide that's happening? Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, It's the 5G. But what about me? Uh... Um, do you have any closing thoughts before favorite thing? Uh, very quickly, because already you can see that we are over the the threshold of time. It's just that, like, uh, I I really think enjoy is the wrong word for this movie. I was very moved by it and very affected by it. So, like, that's why I really decided to pick. And I think it's a movie in itself that I think, in a way, is more powerful than any than many other movies because it's so personable but at the same time it's personable without having to deal with like one specific injustice let's say you know it makes it makes it clear in a way that it's both again that it's something that happens in the micro and in the macro level and that like human beings have to deal with it um live with it and survive it and i think it, it was so so moving when uh, Baldwin is saying that the reason that he had to go to Paris is that no matter what he felt in Paris, even with just $40, nothing worse could come to him there than in America. Mm. And that you cannot become a writer if you're afraid of turning your back in the society that you live in, because then you're just worried about getting killed rather than like doing your work. And I think that that kind of like Baldwin has always been because he's kind of like both really important as a writer, but more personable and more less of this kind of monolithic figure. There's no James Baldwin day in America. You know what I mean? There's a Martin Luther King Mm -hmm. day that it's easier to deal with the human aspect of these injustices. And I think it makes them, more moving but it also creates the space for a more honest discussion of what it was and what it is now and uh Mm. any final thoughts yourself um yeah i I did i did really enjoy it um yeah quite a uh intense week i would say of of viewing of like watching that uh and i watched the movie that is going to be my pick and i watched a lot of um I may destroy you, which is a very, very, very intense kind of builds as a TV show about consent, um, but it deals with a lot of racial issues as well, like in in the UK, um, and it's it's a very tough watch, but excellent as well, like really, really sharp. Um, the the girl who wrote it is um, incredible, but um, I, I think this and also i think most of what i watched and read impacted me so much because they were all personal um you know it it, it brings you down to the a real base level of just like the humanity of the thing rather than the like in something like la 92 where so much of that is like helicopter shots of like watching chaos you know and it's it's just sort of offered up as like look at this spectacle and it, it it lacks you know in that you feel completely powerless to, to, for to do anything or is it, you know not that watching this film you feel that you have any real power or 
but I don't know. You, it, it feels more human or something that you can connect to it more because it is so personal. Um, and it does end up impacting you more because it's like, uh, uh, you know, it's just like general screaming into the void of despair. Yeah. Uh, um, Favorite things? Yeah, so. Um, probably Baldwin's writing, I think. Um, there's like it's such he's so it's so poetic um but urgent as well like especially because of his his personal letters are so almost more stream of conscious than say his debate pro or his prose is you know like this is something that's more um you see him trying to work things out they're not necessarily like like formed opinions they're like him he's almost like playing he's going through the like film of his life the, whole, the way he talks about it and that like was just really i think incredible like that and how the filmmaker decided to to do it that way and that like as i said like had the strength of their convictions to like follow through on it and not like throw in extra explainers or whatever you know or if like james baldwin was born and blah 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 blah. you know it's like there's none of that you don't need that it starts and it ends there's no there's no hand holding necessarily which i very much appreciated um what was your favorite thing well like i think i agree with you and also it's like i don't think that there's any kind of uh other right answer that the that the the best thing about it is james Bond in particular his writing i think that he's a very good public speaker but also i think that he is one of the most eloquent and efficient writers of his generation like uh, i think he's so incredibly able to portray uh, a depth of emotion and kind of depth of um, complexity to both his characters and his thinking that has never been matched in a way I think in American literature like uh, I think that you can see that he was almost inspired by Hemingway and just took it forward because his dialogue like his dialogue his prose is not uh, extremely ornate especially with other writers of his generation his prose is as Hemingway's was quite direct and efficient uh, yeah the there was the uh the dig that john dos passos gave hemingway that he said uh, uh when you read hemingway you'll never have to reach for a dictionary to find out what a word means and then uh, he- and then uh, hemingway <laughs> shot back saying that if you read john dos passos you'll never have to figure out a new emotion uh mm. so I disagree with both statements, but like, in a way, you can see that. But at the same time, the shade. It's that Hemingway was so obsessed with himself that even though I like him as a writer, it's just like uh, about brutish masculinity in a way that uh, even though the books are not criticism on it, because it's mostly like. Hemingway going like look how cool I am and the whole world is a tragedy uh, it becomes a tragedy in itself because it's like you see the perspective of a man that really was not the man he thought he was let's say but in the case of James Baldwin like his writing was able to uh, transcend in a way the be both universal and specific and be both general and very uh, kitchen fucking sink drama but with Mm -hmm. these big emotions that at the same time are very personable that you're able like I read uh, uh, I think his best book is uh, uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain and such great titles it's it's incredible like he's one of the few novelists that i've read that i actually went and started reading their essays afterwards as well Mm. because like even in his essays he's so direct but even like the power his prose never leaves because he always understood the power of language and i think that it's what perhaps why he also was able to relate so well with uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X because they really understood how to use language. So even though they weren't mm-hmm. like 
writers is the bit that like he's having the argument with that philosopher guy that is like no it's like you don't have more in common with a writer a white writer than it's like are you nuts shut up <laughs> oh he was so smarmy as well I was like <laughs> as Ian would say fuck up <laughs> uh, what was your least favourite thing besides the things that you already described as your least favourite things <laughs> um probably just those those small things that 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 bothered me and, and the, I, I find the audio was the thing that annoyed me and there were one or two moments maybe when the the use of archive was a little sort of broad like there's a whole thing where there's loads of like um like uh game shows and it's there's like a little montage of like and it felt a little kind of I, I don't know it just it, it felt a little clumsy or something yeah. sometimes but it was never it was more just I kind of went oh you know every so often I get a little bit like that's uh, you know and like it was it's the kind of thing that like that it just needed a polish you know it just needed a a little a Netflix film not an Amazon Prime film <laughs> oh shade um what was your least favorite thing uh that uh James Baldwin never fucking wrote that book because by god i would have mm. loved to have read it the way that he describes how their lives clashed against each other and in a way showed shown the light to their individual lives because of their clashing and i think it's like it is something that and also i i, I suppose that it's such a pity that madgar ivers is not as remembered or as yeah. as the others because like Jesus Christ is so fucking depressing to think that they neither none of them reach 40 and James Baldwin is there like by himself afterwards like mm. uh, and also I would have loved uh, the Malcolm X movie written by James Baldwin sorry Billy D. Williams I, I would love that movie oh to happen yeah, I, was, I was listening to him was like when I was really working on the screenplay and I was like what I was like, why did that never get made? But <laughs> but not to say that I do fucking love the Malcolm X movie, the Spike Lee mm. version. Like Denzel has never been better in that movie, and I think it is like as powerful as this in a way. But it's also three mm. hours long, so. Uh, but yeah, like uh, I suppose that my least favorite things is that this movie is still fucking prescient. Like the we're not looking oh, wow. that this movie so had to happen. Prescient. And that the what James Baldwin was talking about then, like if somebody wrote what he wrote now, you wouldn't go like, "Oh, this is bullshit." The guy hasn't moved on with the times. Like they would just go, "Oh, he's the voice of a generation." The future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need him. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself North and South, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there's no difference in the North and the South. There's just, you know, a difference in the way they, in a way, they castrate you. But that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not a nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. And the future of the country depends on that, whether or not it's able to ask that question. Uh, so what's next week's film, Orla? Uh, next week's film, I feel, is a continuation on a lot of these themes, um, but also bringing it forward even further, I think. Um, uh, and we're going to be talking about On the Record, which is a film that's just come out, uh, but it is available for streaming, um, which uh, I keep seeing people calling it essential viewing, and it does feel kind of essential viewing. So that's next week. Uh, until then, where can people find us? Uh, on Dublin Digital Radio every Monday, every second Monday, uh, on the Dublin Digital Radio Mixcloud, on 
uh, your podcast of choice at the right game on Twitter, the recommendation game on Facebook, the recommendation game at gmail.com is our email. And if you want to support independent radio, please uh, donate to the Dublin Digital Radio Patreon. Yay! Cool. Well, until then, I was Orla Yes. I was Ricardo Deacon. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Bye.